it rests on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. The last house on the left. Here is the first motion picture to offer to the daring a look into the final maddening space between life and death. The last house on the left. Caution. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Sights and sounds far beyond anything you've tested. The last house on the left. Offered by Sean Cunningham Films Limited in color. Caution. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Take as only much as you can. Only a movie. So there are two loose heads just floating around in here somewhere? You can hear them at night. They whisper to each other and then cry. <laughs> Since our host isn't here, would anyone care to mix me a drink? Horror films ask us many questions. Who will survive and what will be left of them? Who's going to believe a talking head? What's blood for if not for shedding? Do you like scary movies? Have you checked the children? Maybe we'll find the answers together. Thank you for joining us on PhotoFlow, Terror in the Smiles. Here are your hosts, Eric Jones and Jake Almond. Good evening. I'm your host. Welcome to PhotoFlow. Uh, I'm Jake Almond, and with me today is... Eric Jones. Always with you. <laughs> we are back with another double feature, and I think we might be... Uh, after some, after a few weeks of, I think, just kind of fun horror movies, I think we're getting into some dangerous horror movies today. We're going to start off with a movie that came out in 1973. It's actually considered Wes Craven's debut in the genre. Uh, it was a movie that was made by someone who perhaps didn't have the traditional background in filmmaking uh i don't i don't think that a traditional filmmaker could have made this movie um he he came he got his start in the industry as an editor and worked on a lot of lower budget stuff and including pornographic films and basically got his start with another person who we'll talk about in a few weeks uh, sean cunningham who who's famous for friday the 13th and they both cut their teeth in the exploitation side of the business uh and basically as far as as far as the sources that i've read and and seen in interviews it was more or less a hey um do you guys want to make a horror movie they're really hot right now we'll give you such and such amount of money if you can write and direct one and so wes craven wrote and directed the last house on the left and he's very much heavily inspired by Igmar Bergman's Virgin Spring, and, and you can see that if you've ever seen Virgin Spring, even if you just go and watch a trailer for it or something, you'll see that, but at the same time, the level of darkness and anger that Wes Craven tapped into here is very much unique. It's, 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 not, it's not the art picture that Virgin Spring is, let's just put it that way, but that's not to say it's without art. As a horror fan when you are studying the 70s 
I feel like Last House on the Left is going to be there somewhere. When talking to you about your origin and, and, and your own discovery of, of horror, this seems like the type of movie that would turn off a person who is getting into, who maybe doesn't like horror naturally or doesn't like horror initially. And you seem to be drawn to a more honest, challenging horror film. So what was your first impression or the first time you ever heard of Last House on the Left? Um, first time I heard of it was um, when the 2009 remake uh, came out. Um, I had never I never saw the remake. Um, and I can't remember if it came out before then or after, but the remake of um, uh, Craven's The Hills Have Eyes, um, which I did see that remake. Um I can't remember which one came out first, but that was when I when the the remake for Last House on the Left came out. That was the first time I I thought it was a, just a new movie, and then I found out it was a remake, and it was like, oh, this is a, a '70s film from uh, Wes Craven. But I never actually I never got around to it. Um, and yes, like you said, I'm kind of drawn to these more. Uh, low budget yet sort of uh realistic type of um uh horror movies you know we we discussed texas chainsaw the original texas chainsaw massacre um on the show and as you know that's probably my number one um ever um i love that sort of down-to-earth griminess that uh and and Texas Chainsaw is certainly a grimy movie, and Last House on the Left is definitely uh, a grimy movie. And I think what I like about those types is that they're the they're the type of movie where no matter how much I watch it, I can always feel okay. This is definitely something that could happen. Um, you know, as much as I you know, and as much as I love. Um, uh, like Friday the Thirteenth, or or Halloween, and not that, not that events like that couldn't occur. But you know, when you get the you know Friday the Thirteenth, or Halloween, or or Scream, or or any or many other types of horror films, um, you can tell that they're uh, well, you know, as time goes on, you know, the the a lot of the horror tropes are already coming uh coming to life. So when you watch some of them, you're already kind of you're in on the tropes already. So you kind of know how it goes. But like for a movie like, you know, Last House on the Left, you that there's not there's no tropes yet to really uh, to go off of. Um, you know, I'll even throw I'll even throw Psycho into that type of thing um, because it's it it just feels like it's a movie that's kind of about just real people and like a heart, like horrible things that could happen uh, to real people. And that's why I'm sort of, uh, as time goes on, I kind of get drawn to um, those, you know, those types of um, movies. Um, you know, I'm sure eventually we'll get to uh, T.I. West's uh, X. Um, and I love that um, that came out this year. I love that because it's, again, the same way. It's very it's very real and the the setting just feels like people doing things that people normally would do and they unfortunately get caught up into um horrific events and i like when a a, a director kind of like uh, like craven does here um or with 
uh, Toby Hooper with Texas Chainsaw. They don't shy away. They don't shy away from that, and they don't make it. They don't make it cinematic where it feels like we're making this look cool for a movie. It's like no, this is fright. You know, this is frightening. This thing happening to these people uh, are it is frightening. Um, you know, I could very, you know, it, it probably wouldn't even be too far out of the way now, you know, to hear, like if you were just listening to your, your local news or something to hear, there were two girls that went missing the other day. They were just walking the street and, you know, that's it because they just happened to talk to the wrong person at the wrong time. And um, yeah, that's sort of that down, to, that sort of down to earth un compromising and people will say that's like you know if someone has criticism of it not that people don't have the right to feel how they feel um but i always do applaud that a film when a filmmaker just goes you know what i'm going to show this what it is it's nasty it's unpleasant um but it's you know it's real and this is what uh what could happen and if you're unsettled good you're going to you know you're going to be unsettled and um yeah that's I, over the years that's that's something i've been kind of drawn to um you know with a film like this uh texas chainsaw or um uh i spit on your grave um that's another one um probably even more probably even more grimy than this one um but yeah that's that's what i love about um this particular this exploitation style of uh horror film yeah, I mean, it it didn't take people long to go beyond this, but I still think that this is a watershed kind of a, a film, like you were saying. Um, I mean, because you could go back to, like, uh, horror movies from the 30s to the 40s to the 50s to the 60s even, and then you see, like, this change, um, you know, with the culture in general. Everything... Uh, got a little bleaker in the world, I would say. Like, I mean, granted, we had gone through two world wars, but it just, in American culture specifically, and thinking of the time that Wes Craven grew up in, there was this uh, this push to Puritanism that's always been there, I feel like, in society, uh, post-war uh, society of America is now a superpower, and, we're, and, and it feels like a lot of the uh, stereotypes of America in the 50s and all that, even though there's a lot of... And there's a lot of films that dive into this, by the way, but there's a really dark underbelly to the 1950s that I think, uh, even though the TV shows and the, a lot of the movies of its time, weirdly enough, even more than the 40s and the 60s that it's sandwiched between, it felt like the 50s were trying to really portray this false image of uh, of American goodness. You know, like, like a perfect society almost. It just feels like that's just part and i have i'm a little more critical of movies from that decade for that reason like there are some really great movies from the 50s but i have a harder time sinking my teeth into it because it felt like uh it was harder to make a gritty film during that decade there was a lot more you know the mccarthyism and all that kind of stuff there was just it was a little harder now there are some i could name like a 10 if i thought of it like really great movies from that decade but and more but uh, there's this this weird thing that happens, and I think it happens again in the Reagan era of the '80s. Like this, even though there's plenty of good trash, you know, entertainment during that period. But 
it's just a this false. Uh, I it's it's just this weird thing, and I think Wes Craven, growing up as somebody who wasn't really allowed to be part of the normal youth movement of 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 his of his own youth and all that, like he was he was in a fundamentalist Baptist like I don't know what type of specific Baptist uh, upbringing that he was brought up in, but he wasn't allowed to watch movies. I think he, I think he got to see a, a few Disney movies or something growing up, but he was just very uneducated when it came to film, and he was very educated when it came to literature, literature and other things, and that's what he was drawn to. So when he goes to college and he starts watching films, he's drawn to these art films like the Igmar, you know, the Bergman films and stuff. So it makes sense that he saw the Virgin Spring and 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 that stuck with him as something he could frame a story around. That's, but what's what blows my mind is like he's not the traditional filmmaker. So when he filters that through his own uh, mind, it comes out as the last house on the left, and it's very much him pointing the the finger back at the fundamentalism and the hypocrisy uh, and his anger at the time. And he talks about that in multiple interviews. Uh, it's just a very bleak film. And even though there are movies that went beyond it gore wise and, and, and how graphic they are, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a movie that stuns you when you watch it. Like it stuns me every time I watch it. And, and it's like you were, you really smart comparison to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I would argue like this type of horror film exists because of Night of Living Dead in 68, because after that was like the one that said we can take a lot of anxiety and, and angst of our, of what's going on in the world with Vietnam and the, and, and the stuff, you know, the civil rights movement, the other things that were going on in that decade and filter it through this lens of revolution and all these other things that are happening and, and, and war and all these horrible images that we're seeing on our TVs and make this really bleak, but honest horror film. And I think when you get to Wes Craven in 1973, he's doing very much the same type of thing, whether intentionally or not, but he's very clear that he was reacting a lot of the nihilism and anger in last house on the left comes from what was going on in society at the time with the Vietnam war specifically and other things. And he's at this point, he's on college, uh, on college campuses, or maybe this is post college for him. But he's he's been he he's 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 got an education in film and, and art house cinema, and here he is doing grindhouse cinema. And I don't even think he knew what was appropriate. Like I don't think he knew where that line was. And I think that if he had known where that line was, there might be certain things that he softened in this film. And I'm glad he didn't, because. Uh, this movie was a lot, was, was controversial, was so controversial, like people, you know, this, well, here's a good example, there's this movie called Terrifier 2, right, that's out, and I don't know if you've seen it, how much, uh, they've marketed it as being this movie that'll make you throw up, and, and all this kind of stuff, but it, it all, it's, all that is, is just the old-fashioned marketing, like The Exorcist did, of, of, you'll faint, and you'll throw up, and all this stuff, and all that does is get more people to want to watch it, 
no matter how good the movie is, it gets more people wanting to watch it. I'm not knocking it. I just thought, well, that's pretty transparent what they're doing, but whatever, it works for them. So they got this smaller film into more theaters. With movies like Night of the Living Dead, they got they got into those theaters because those that was a that was movie made a statement. Now it did make people sick and it did make people it did shock people and it did make people cry. <laughs> But it got into theaters because it was a really good movie and it had something to say. And I think Last House on the Left tr- actually did some of those same type of marketing tricks with its just repeat, it's only a movie, it's only a movie. It's not, the, the thing is, it doesn't lie about that. When you watch it, it feels like they're capturing something really disturbing on film. Like, it's not the gore, it's the fact that you feel like they're taking something from the the character on screen and you feel like you're watching people lose their lives at least in those at least in those most famous scenes in the 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 two the two teenagers i don't know that it feels like that in the last act i think it goes a little over the top and crazy <laughs> i love it don't get me wrong i love the last act but it it feels like that though during the the rape and murder scenes of uh that start the whole thing off Part of that is like if you look at like <clears throat> if you look at horror movie history, um, there's usually almost always um, a, 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 fam- a familiar face, no matter what the movie was or, you know, what you thought of the, the subject matter itself. You know, if you you know, you go all the way back to the, you know, to the 30s, if you have the the universal monsters, you know, you have, you know, you have. Karloff and Cheney and Lugosi and Claude Rains, you know, you get to the Hammer era, you have like, you know, you have uh, Christopher Lee and, you know, you're you're Peter Cushing and, you know, even even with Psycho, you know, I think, you know, I think uh, you, you had familiar faces like Janet Lee or or Anthony Perkins faces people saw before or, you know, or because you know, Hitchcock was directing a face people knew. Um, but with you know last house you know you don't have you don't have any familiar faces uh you just have this the these characters uh the you know you have these two uh teenage girls who whose faces you don't know you have these uh monstrous uh criminals who uh you don't know and you have a director and a producer who people don't know and i you, you, there's like a there's like an audacity <laughs> they're outside of that hollywood system yeah yeah there's like an audacity to it it's like well who the hell are these people to show us these hard you know to 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 show us these horrible things and that but you know like you said you know like you were saying about craven and his his background he didn't come from you know, he didn't come from all that like, you know, like most did. He didn't he didn't do go through the the Hollywood system like, you know, like normal. He he did what he did. He worked the way he worked and he had to. Ch- and when he's doing his first film, he's ch- he, um, channeling all that uh, into while still making his, uh, you know, while definitely getting his point across i think he's saying just saying that hey the you know these and i don't think he's i've seen some say that this was like it's nihilistic i believe it's definitely bleak i don't think he's saying i don't think he's saying that the you know people you know lives aren't worth anything i think what he's saying is that 
what what you think it what you think is this you know serenity this uh, serene type of life there's a you know there's there are elements to it that you know can bring you know destruction to it that you know it's this it's not it's not all as pretty as you think you know like you were talking about with your some of your experience with some uh some films from the 50s it's not it's not all uh it's not all leave it to beaver if that you know if that makes sense well and i think yeah that you made a good point and the po- the part that he said Wes craven himself in an interview said that disturbed people about this movie more than anything. It wasn't the content. It was the, it was the way we talk about tone a lot on the show, but it was the scene specifically when they've already killed. And, um, I don't think they've killed Mary yet. They've killed the, the other girl and, um, forgive me. I'm once again, terrible with character names, uh, Phyllis. They, they've killed the Phyllis. They've killed Phyllis. And they almost have a, they're all kind of standing around looking like, and they're like picking the, uh, the pieces of grass that stuck to their fingers and, and things like These are the moments that don't feel like a typical horror film to me, but the scene where they're all covered in blood and they're all picking the, the pieces of grass off their hands. And, and then it shows, they almost look like they're disgusted about what they did. And it forces you to not empathize with the killers. It forces you to humanize the killers. You, they're not they're not faceless monsters. They're regular people that feel things. They're not like good point about nihilism. They're not nihilistic even. They might be psychotic. I mean, you know, whatever the whatever their you know psychiatric profile would be. They are people, and we are now seeing them as human beings that can feel things, and that's somehow more disturbing, and it is. And I would argue that that's one of the most, like, even watching it uh, uh, Tuesday or Monday or whenever it was I watched it, I was, that scene struck me harder, and it has been years, it had been years since I'd watched this movie, but that scene struck me harder watching it that during that viewing than it ever has before, because it's it's really something else like that's probably the single most powerful moment in the entire film and i mean they immediately start goofing off again when they're washing off but for just a moment they they felt something it was like they had to desecrate this woman and to feel something you know and it and it and i think that he's right about that i i also think that it just it feels horrible like when you're watching it like in a way like it feels genuinely like you're watching uh real as close to you can as there aren't very many movies that feel like you actually watch somebody the life go out of somebody in the way that last lesson left does i don't know in 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 all the criticisms of this film are always like well they use goofy music with the cops or they lean on comedic things or whatever this seems like a very normal thing for the time because I, I think even the our next feature actually did some some of that too but i would argue that the difference between the comedy that the occasional bit little bits of comedy in this movie versus other films it, it almost it almost feels more disturbing and more to the point of what 
Wes is trying to say, which is exactly what you said, that life can be beautiful, but life can also be really ugly. And these things are truths that exist together. There's not a, and they're often in the same person because what, what ultimately one of the things that Wes Craven does is the thing he does with a lot of his movies, which is take a, a good person and force them to become not as evil as the bad guys because you understand their motivations. That's the scary part. He forces good people to do horrible things. And I think uh, he does this through several several of his films. It seems to be a theme that he's he really likes. And even when he try, even though it's a fumble as a film overall, I still really enjoy it. And Shocker, he tried to to show a character turn their back on his his whole thesis was everybody has the potential to be a killer. Everybody has the potential if you give them the right circumstances and put them in the right situation, just like in war. Uh, it's kill or be killed. And, and what he does to the parents in this film is turn them into vicious murderers. <laughs> but even though you can say, you kind of, I mean, I don't know how you felt watching it, but I'm kind of like on the side of the parents regardless. But at the same time, what they're being forced to do is horrible, you know? And it's definitely going to be like, life is never going to be the same after this. Um, well, you know the, the the very first the 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 very first time, just watching it, I was like, I, you know, I'm just thinking from. I guess I I guess I was just thinking from a a, a writing perspective. I'm like, oh well, goodness, they, they, you know, the parents sure did do a, uh, you know, a a one eighty, you know, really quick. You know, it's like, well, darn, they they didn't even write in time for them to, you know, time for them to grieve or anything like that. You know, you, I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, we're missing a scene of 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 a funeral or, or something like that. Something that gives us time with the parents, with Mary's parents, as they come to grips that their daughter has been, like, murdered. But it's, it's really like a, it's a switch that flips just, you know, just like that. And, you know, when I watched it this time, I was like, you know what? I could understand, like, I could understand that, that they're like, wait a minute. Oh, these are the people who killed our daughter and they're in our house right now. And I could imagine just, you know, I was like, you know what? I could imagine a parent just going, nope, that's it. That's it. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of this. We'll take care of this right now. Um, It could be seen a little bit, uh, uh, what was I going to think? What was I thinking of when I was watching it? Um, almost like it's almost like a, a a predecessor to to the finale of to the finale of Home Alone a little bit. Uh, you know, <laughs> it is almost like that, and yeah, yeah. it can it could sometimes come across a smidgen. Well, actually, the only the only one I think is is somewhat comedic is when um when you know the mother. Um, you know, the you know does does the bite you know the biting. Um, um, <laughs> yes. that, so he, so what's that guy's name? Uh, whatever his damn name is. Anyway, one of the villains basically uh, comes on to the to the mom and the mom. Uh, weasel takes weasel. Him, yeah, weasel. Yeah, weasel. Weasel um, comes on to the mother, and 
so you have Krug, Weasel, Junior, and Sadie, right? Yep. All right, and so they're very much like a Manson family type thing, and um, but without a Charles Manson, really. I mean, Krug, I guess you could argue, but he's he's really more of like a Tex or something. If we're talking about the Manson family, so you have this group of, and that's probably what. Let's be real. This is seventy three. That's probably what Craven was drawing from, but he seems to be very much pointing the finger at the uh the hippies that failed i mean essentially the hippie culture that that failed i mean they 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 changed the world but not in not for not in the not in the way that they i think intended to there was no it was like the 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 revolution of the hippies had fallen by this point like it had totally failed and the world was not a better place in 1973 and uh, and I think Craven was feeling a little bit of anger about that too, because um, even though I think that he very much was anti-war and he was very much wanting things to be uh, equal rights and other things, I just feel like he was very critical of his own generation and even the generation that preceded it. And he very much was critical of authority throughout his whole career. And with with the the Manson family, you know, kind of framework, he makes this little, his own little, you know, degenerate family. And basically the scene that Eric's talking about is Weasel talks the mom into, or no, the mother seduces Weasel because she kind of comes on to her, but she's like, well, let's go outside. And she, she proceeds to, to go down on him. And, and of course, it, right before he climaxes, she bites his, his, I'm assuming bites his penis off. So anyway, so well, <laughs> go ahead for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. It's not graphic, but it's, it's, it feels like it's, yeah, impactful. it's very disturbing. Yeah. 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 It makes an impact. Yeah, it does. Make, it, it does make an impact. Cause... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I love that moment though. I like, uh, that's one of my favorite like moments in the movie. Um, there's the that whole finale is great, like it it feels earned. Uh, it is it is. I understand what you mean about the traps. It's funny because he does the same kind of thing in The Hills Have Eyes. Also, he he does the booby traps and then he does it again in Nightmare on Elm Street because Nancy does he she Nancy even uses a similar trick with the wire pulling the wire across the doorway, except for she sets it up with the uh, sledgehammer instead of uh, electricity. So. Um, and then she does that cool shotgun shell trick that they also did in, uh, the James Bond movie, Skyfall. Oh yeah. With the, uh, pouring the shotgun shell powder. And, and let me tell you, as a kid who grew up in the country and probably grew up around too many guns, I loved taking, this is telling on myself a little bit, but I loved taking the powder out of shotgun shells and, uh, blowing it up when I was a kid. So, <laughs> yeah, great childhood. Thank you, Wes Craven. No. <laughs> I did get that from, from Wes Craven. <laughs> I'm sure that wasn't his intention there, but yeah. Uh, for those of you who watch like Phantasm or Nightmare on Elm Street and wonder where these kids are getting the shotgun shells, it was just easy. I'm telling you, for certain kids in certain places, certain generation, it wasn't that hard. Um, it should be. It should be. That's part of the problem in our country now. <laughs> too many, too many kids with access to mom and dad's guns. But I digress. Last house on the left was one of those movies that I found that book at the library when I got really into horror films and 
it was an old outdated book but it had a list of like it was talking about like grindhouse drive-in type you know exploitation films and i wasn't really that well educated in that genre at that time even though now it's like one of my favorite i love i love a good low budget shocker you know and I'm going through the book, and of course it mentions the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. See, that was the one that I knew about. Like, everybody knew about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That that one had achieved pretty much, like, even though it was still very much a, a cult film, it's achieved uh, mainstream recognition, thanks to the VHS era or whatever. It's through word of mouth, because my mom's never seen it, but she's she can talk about it, you know what I mean? Like, everybody knows about it. So, I knew about that one. But in that same article, it mentions The Last House on the Left. And I knew who Wes Craven was, but I didn't realize he was the one that did The Last House on the Left. So as soon as I find this out and I kind of put it all together, the only thing it talked about in that was the gore. All, all, it mentions the, the scene you you just mentioned about, you know, the Lorraine Bobbitt scene. And it mentioned the, and it mentioned the, um, the gutting, you know, the, but it also, but it, that's all. Like, so I'm just expecting a gore film, right? So, fast forward, maybe, like, it wasn't easy to find. Like, this movie was not even for rent at the little mom and pop video store that I used to go to that had a great horror section. There was nobody that had this in Albemarle, that any video store that I ever went into that had a copy of this. But as I'm starting to buy more movies, my friend Jason and I went to and went to the place where I bought a lot of a lot of horror films and they had a copy of it on VHS and it was supposedly the unrated cut. Now, Last House on the Left has a history of censorship. So, depending on which part of the world you got a copy in or which part of the country of in America you got a copy in, at the time it wasn't easy to find a complete version. There was just so many different chopped up versions, including one that was basically like a PG-13 version. Uh, which I have never watched because I'm like, what's the point? But the Arrow set actually has three different cuts. It has the unrated, the most complete cut that's available. I don't know that it's, I don't know that there's not one or wasn't one at one point that was even more uh, complete, but this one is the most complete cut available and it looks as good as this movie's ever going to look. And it's about $32 on eBay if anyone's interested. And then there was an R-rated cut, which I'm pretty sure was the one that was on my VHS tape. And then there was one called Krug and Company. I think that was the more PG, like PG-13 cut. And I don't, like I said, I haven't ever watched it. I might watch it one day out of curiosity, just to be a completist. But Yeah, the one on my long story was, short, uh, was the unrated. Yes, I believe that Blu-ray is the MGM one. Yeah, yeah. I believe that one was the first so i watched that vhs with my friend jason and we were expecting this really by this time we had seen evil dead and we had seen like you know a number of other horror films and i was expecting something crazy you know because the reputation of the movie so when strangely enough and we're teenagers we're stupid like we're immature and stupid and i'm thinking this is going to be a crazy horror movie so when it wasn't a crazy horror movie in that way it just didn't really strike out at me as being all that crazy, all that. I mean, granted the scene, the, some of the scenes were still shocking, but there was a lot, a lot of the, the rape scene and the gutting and the other stuff was cut down from what, what that article was talking about. And I, I thought I had the complete version. 
So years of maybe I don't know five years later they put out that MGM DVD and it's so I'm like I'm gonna upgrade my VHS because by that point I had I had the curiosity of like I haven't watched this again let me give it another shot so I put that in and I was just it had the introduction with Wes Craven that I think the era Blu-ray also has and I was kind of stunned by like okay no this is the real version of the movie and now it's still not like a gore fest. But it is definitely a harder film than the version that I saw the first time. And I was like, it the power of it. And I'm not talking about because anything was more graphic necessarily. It was just the power of it and the way it was edited was there. In the way that it wasn't the first time I saw it. And I was also a little older. And I was a little, maybe I was really watching it. Not just to watch it for the shock value at this point. And... And it's become one of those movies that I don't watch it every year, but I revisit it every few years. And like you, I kind of put it on the same pedestal as like, I put it on the same pedestal as like Not a Living Dead and and Texas Chainsaw Massacre in terms of the, the type of, um, the type of change that they, that they all brought to horror, the horror genre in general. And I think that Toby Hooper and, George Romero and Wes Craven, they all three of those guys specifically came from the outside of the film industry to make movies that the Hollywood would have never had the balls to make. And I just love them for it. I, I mean, I just love it. So that was my experience with it. Yeah, that I'm, yeah, I, I, I do watch it quite. Well, like I said, I think it is part of my regular Halloween uh, rotation now. And uh, yeah, a lot, you know, a, a, a lot of the same points. I, I like I was saying earlier, when I discovered the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I realized that's a sort of that's a aesthetic that I really uh, like. And I always I don't know, I just always find it. I feel grateful when um when uh, a, a creative uh, person, you know, a director or writer, whoever, um, doesn't, um, you know, doesn't flinch. And I, I mean that as in like, you know, I'm going to show you something. I'm not, I'm not, I'm showing you an uncompromised view, not necessarily uncompromised vision. Although I do want, you know, if someone has a specific vision for their film, I'd love to see them make sure it's, you know, what they put out there is what they wanted to put out there. But I'm more so, I mean, like in terms of just the actual, uh, the specific content. Um, and yeah, I, this is definitely something that I could have seen that if I'd have known about it years ago when I was still renting movies out, out the video store, this is definitely one I would have, uh, fit, you know, try to have, uh, you know, try to have rent, uh, at some point, um, but yeah, there's just something. There's just something about the the uh, the uncompromised nature of it, um, and I res I respect the hell out of that. Uh, so yeah, this one, and honestly, it sh has Craven made better movies than it. I would say, what I'd say, three of the Scream movies are better. I say Nightmare on Elm Street is better. Is better. I'll say. People under the stairs um, is better, but I think if there's ever, but if there's just something special about Last House on the Left that I just 
I love to, re, you know, I love to revisit it. And um, this time when I watched it, I just watched, watched it straight through. Um, I got to watch it again with, um, uh, there's a commentary and I'm sure your arrow set probably has as well. Commentary with Craven and uh, Sean Cunningham. I've been going back through. Yeah. I've been going back through and watching uh, and I plan on just going through when I get, especially when I get back in the house one day, I want to go through all of Craven's movies with his commentaries because he, he put a commentary on almost all, almost all of his films. Which I, I mean, there might be a couple where he didn't, but I just think that is so valuable listening to him talk about it because he really thought about things. Even movies that feel a little more lightweight, like Shocker, watching it with commentary will make you. It might not make you love the movie more. But it will make you appreciate what he was going for because he really put a lot of thought into why the characters are reacting the way they are to each other and what the overall, like how it connects to the world outside of the film itself. You know, he was just really, he had that, that, that ability to think about things in a literary, literary way or a philosophical way that I don't. I just never hear other filmmakers, or maybe it's just other people just aren't able to put it into words the same way as him. I just find his his thought process and his thoughtfulness fascinating. Like I love listening to Wes Craven talk about character motivation and and storytelling. He had a real passion for it, and he's just a really cool guy. Like holy crap, there's just not that many people that seem to have a, an understanding of the human experience the way Craven did, and I think. You're right that there are better movies that he made, but there aren't very many movies that are as powerful as this one. I think that there's something to be said that it's not just, oh, well, how well is it edited or how well is it shot? Absolutely, there are better filmmakers in terms of that. That wasn't really what made West special. I think what made West special is right here in this movie, and I understand that it's a little much for some people. It's what draws me to his work and is there is a certain amount of honesty to it even when it's clunky or silly or or occasionally soap opera or you know there's like even when it's weird like the nightmare on elm street's a weird movie it's a weird movie and people say things weird and it's filmed in a weird way like everything feels very like you're it works because it's a dream for me, that movie works, and we'll talk about it when we get to that film, but that movie works for me because it's a, it feels like a nightmare. And not in a bad way, but I mean, it like feels like how dreams and nightmares really work. And it's just a bizarre movie. Like, there's no other movie that's that has that, that has that rhythm. And I don't think there's very many other movies that have what Last House on the Left has. There's a lot of movies that have tried to have what Last House on the Left has. I would argue... Uh, Eli Roth and Rob Zombie to some extent have tried to capture that vibe, you know, along with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Cannibal Holocaust and any, any movie like that, but nobody's ever really made a last house. And I haven't even seen the remake, although I would like to, I, I like the fact that Wes Craven was involved in both the remake of last house and the Hills have eyes. I would argue the Hills have eyes is more successful in what it's trying to do than The Last House on the Left, but I still don't think it's... It's more of a standard horror film, it, and it's a great one. But it's not... It doesn't make me feel like 
I'm seeing something like getting a glimpse at something that's almost forbidden. <laughs> like, like I'm somebody, I mean, somebody much smarter than me and many, probably more than one person has said, it's like watching a snuff film. Well, that sounds horrible. Like I wouldn't actually want to watch a snuff film, but I think what they mean is it, it, it captures when you, uh, when you're, when you're wanting, when you're making a movie, you want to capture whatever you're doing with emotion or with, um, with something you're wanting it to be honest. And that's what last house on left does is it captures something honest. So even, even with the parents being kind of more conservative parents, and I don't mean conservative politically, but just, they're more your typical parents. And, and, and she is the typical teenager of that era. And she's wanting, she's the, you know, wanting to be a strong independent woman that's in, that embraces her sexuality and all that stuff. So the opening of the whole beginning of the film is she's, you know, her father's kind of criticizing about the shirt that she's wearing. And, but he doesn't make her go change her shirt. He just says, Hey, you know, like I can, you know, you, you know, it's kind of indecent or whatever. And, but whatever, you know, he doesn't make her, you know, they, they, they seem to be fairly liberal parents, right? They seem to be fairly, um, peace and love type people and that's the they're not fundamentalists like i i i think that the the pointing the finger at the fundamentalist side of it would have would be more like this is a movie that none of my fundamentalist friends and family would ever watch and i think that's kind of what craven said at one point was like he thought he was making a movie that nobody he knew would like it would just be something he made with his friends or whatever and somebody would make money on it it might get him it might allow him to make another movie, but he didn't think anything would come of it. Uh, so, but the tr- the emotional truth in that is that she is a teenage girl who wants to be an adult, who wants to embrace her sexuality, who wants to have the freedom to go to the big city and smoke grass and watch a, a concert. And she's very, but at the same time, she's still a kid. Both her and Phyllis. And Phyllis seems to be the cool kid. The cooler kid that's a little more streetwise. But what you find out as the movie goes on is that they're both just kids. And they genuinely don't have any idea of the danger that that's awaiting them. And I think that when I was the age that they are watching. I was probably 16, 17 watching this film for the first time with my friend Jason. We were both the ages of the two girls in the movie we could have related a lot to them and that we were guys that was the only difference but like the whole idea of we're smart enough i have a job and i have a car and i'm smart enough to i can go do what i want to do in the big city and i'm not in any i didn't worry about a thing man i was like not at all worried about anybody hurting me and he wasn't either fast forward to when he's 27 my friend Jason got tortured and murdered in his basement. And I'm talking like in real life. So it's kind of a, it's kind of the emotional truth of, of that. The characters in this movie, they have no idea that's going to, that, that anybody in the world would even think about harming them. And I know he didn't either. He, he never thought for a second that anybody in the world would do something like that to him. You know what I mean? So in this film, when that happens, it's so jarring and so shocking that the uh, I think that the parents are just reacting to their anger in that moment. 
they're angry and they have an opportunity. If I had an opportunity at my lowest point when I was grieving over my friend, I probably would have murdered the person that killed him too. I'm just being honest. I mean, like emotionally, whether I would have or not in that situation, emotionally, I understand that. Like in in the movie, I think they capture that. Be, he's being honest. He's putting a mirror to you and saying, would you, if given these circumstances, be the good person that you know you are, or what you your idealistic self, or would you be an animal? Could you be an animal if given the right circumstances? I think most people, and I think Wes Craven understood this, I think most people could. And um, the truth is, when you're when you are young like that, if you're a decent person, you don't really think that there's anybody out there that would just kill you just for the fun of it. And there are people that would, or just hurt you, or just not care about you and leave you on the side of the road, you know? So, um, I'm not saying the entire world's like that. I mean, I'm not like that. You're not like that. I mean, not everybody's like that, but there are people out there like that. And I think that, um, Wes was being more honest than a lot of people and, and Toby Hooper, even though I think Toby Hooper is tapping into that fear of fear of the the unknown in, in like the country, you know, that that's a whole different fear, I think, than what's going on in the last house on the left. I think last house on the left is saying, uh, evils, e- the evils in the small towns too. It's not just in the mean big city. Cause the whole movie is this anxiety about that. She's going to go to New York and she's going to go to this concert and she's going to get in drugs. And the irony is the scariest part of last of the scariest scene in last house on the left. And then I'm going to shut up is the scene where, they go to the big city, right? And they go and they buy they go to buy weed and they end up in the in the apartment and they meet the bad guys in the movie. And you think, well, this is where cuz you know, Weasel pulls the knife on them and all that. And you think this is where they're going to get killed. If you've never seen the movie before, you think this is what that's going to happen. They're going to they're going to, you know, rape and kill them here if if that's all you know th- that happens in the movie. But the scariest thing in the movie is that it cuts to it cuts back and forth between the parents kind of preparing for her, I guess her 18th birthday or 17th birthday and where the girls are. And the, the scariest thing that happens is they, they, the car breaks down and you realize that they have the girls in the trunk of the car. Now they're not in the big scary city anymore. They're in the, the idealistic or the idyllic, uh, beautiful God fearing country. And the last thing Mary sees before they're taken into the woods and and brutalized is her mailbox. She's that close to home. She's right there at home, and and it, and it, and she is not. She's not even safe. She could literally at that moment. I'm always thinking, just run for it. Just they don't, you know, just run for it. Your house is right there, you know. And uh, but to the movie's credit, like you were talking about tropes, this movie doesn't really play with tropes because Wes Craven didn't really know the tropes. And I don't know that there were really steadfast, strong tropes for this type of movie. And it's not a slasher film. So you never really feel safe. And like you said, there's nobody in the film that you recognize. Uh, That moment when she looks at the mailbox and realizes she's she's in danger right here in her own backyard essentially is a terrifying idea <laughs> and i think that that sticks with me like that that part of the film is is especially uh frightening and and it's not safe feeling because it's not it's not following any sort of formula 
Nope, totally agree. I mean, it's it's a great movie, man. Like, I I think that the final act is so much fun. Like, it's insane. It, it one of the things that I think Craven really loves to do is go completely bonkers, apeshit, nuts in the last act. Uh, he does it with he does it really well in in uh, just about all of his greatest films. He he just goes completely wild in that last act. And Last House and Left sets that standard. Uh, the Hills Have Eyes does something similar. Uh, I'm thinking of the other films of his that I just genuinely love. All the People screams. Under the Stairs. Yeah, all the screams, like the last acts, especially in the first one, are yeah. just amazing. Just amazing. And the last act of Scream, not the first time I watched it, because I don't think I had seen Last House on the Left yet, the first time I had seen Scream. But definitely on repeat viewings over the years, that you can see little, even though it's Kevin Williamson that wrote it, I don't know how much of the original Kevin Williamson script, you know, was was crafted during production or after, but at least in the way that it's filmed and the pace of the editing and just the tone of it, feels like it taps just a little bit into the Last House on the Left. I know I posted that thing about Billy and Krug, and they are dressed kind of similarly. I don't know if that was intentional, but it's really great because there is a... Scream does become a bit more dangerous in that last act. It doesn't feel like it's all tongue-in-cheek and meta anymore. Like, it, it suddenly feels like it it's just on the border of going too far, right? In a way that uh, 90s horror films weren't doing. And I think that's, that's Wes Craven kind of being brilliant. But now we got a Wes Craven who knows where the line is and knows just how to tiptoe right up to it. You know what I mean? And still be commercially viable. I'm not knocking that because i love scream and it's not the type of movie that needs to go to last house on the left territory but there's still a, a lot of anger in that last in that last act and it does tap into something um he does it again with like even before scream he does it serpent in the rainbow has a really bonkers last act which i love um the, and i think we mentioned people under the stairs but like the mom going nuts at people in her series is always like the at the very end is always the most um the thing that sticks with me the most about that movie but yeah i love i love wes craven's third act uh, and i and it was kind of funny watching scream five when she goes welcome to the final act or welcome to the third act or whatever it is she says right before everything goes crazy because it felt like there were so many tributes to wes craven and that was probably the best one because it's a, if it's paying tribute to Wes Craven, you gotta go crazy in the final act, and I think that I think they understood the assignment on that one. No, it's a, it's a. I think it's a great piece of uh, of uh, exploitation, great piece of horror, and um, as a word, as a as a word of warning to uh, our listeners, yes, there'll be uh, more uh, Craven covered on uh, this show, and just to give y'all all a heads up um, early. Uh, Jake and I are both pro vampire in Brooklyn. So yes, that will get a, yes. a cover at some point. I love that movie. Yeah. yeah I mean, that one even goes, that one even has a pretty good final act. I mean, I, I think vampire in Brooklyn is very much misunderstood, but I, I do have a soft spot for that movie. It's also got some great West Craven alumni, you know, that pop up in it and uh, just a good movie. I don't have anything else to add. I think I've I pretty much 
shot my load on that one. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> in the spring of 1946, in the small town of Texarkana, on the Texas-Arkansas border, a series of horrific murders were committed by a masked assailant known only as the Phantom Killer. For three harrowing months, the Phantom stalked the back roads of Texarkana, following young couples looking for privacy to isolated areas where their screams for help would go unanswered. Though several arrests were made in connection with their brutal slayings, which ended as suddenly as they began, the killer's identity was never confirmed. Indeed, many people who lived through that nightmare time believed the Phantom spent the rest of his days free, walking the streets of Texarkana quietly and anonymously until his assumed death. Yeah, so our next film is a movie that I actually just recently, like I watched it, I want to say last year was the first time I'd ever seen it. And this was not one that I was familiar with during my, like, horror spree of my teenage years when I was really getting into the genre. The first time I had ever heard the title mentioned was in scream, but I never, it was for whatever reason, it was like every other movie they mentioned I had either seen or I've seeked out pretty quickly thereafter. Like Candyman was one that, that I remember coming out and I, and, and they mention it like twice in scream, uh, one or two times in scream. And, I think they mentioned it in Scream too, so I think it was, that was what I'm thinking when I think two times. But they they referenced Candyman enough, and it was part of the kind of culture at the time that I I got that one not long after I really dug back into horror, and Silence of the Lambs was one that I was already a fan of, and all these other films that Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all these other movies that Scream references, I had seen or I or I saw fairly you know, close after I, you know, saw it and, and became interested in it. Cause you could almost write a list, terror train and evil dead and Hellraiser and all every time they name drop something, I've, I had seen it by that point. So, uh, the one, the one movie that they mentioned in the film by name, Dewey brings up the town that dreaded sundown. And this was another film that never played on TV that I remember. And it, and I never saw the, the VHS box on, on the shelf so I was just kind of unaware of it and years later uh I mean other than the title other than the title and years later uh I watched the Legend of Boggy Creek on Shudder uh and it was one of the first Joe Bob uh you know hosted movies that I had watched with Heather because she likes she really loves like cryptids and Bigfoot and all that kind of stuff she loves that she just loves it. It doesn't matter if it's cheesy or takes it seriously or whatever. So I said, well, you, you probably like the legend of Boggy Creek. And that was my introduction to this director. And then, uh, but then I found out, okay, that's the guy who did the town to dread of sundown, which is the only thing I knew about it was that Dewey mentioned it. So then I started reading about it and I'm reading about the Texarkana moonlight murders and all that. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And I, I was always really fascinated with the Zodiac case. <laughs> Um, hello. <laughs> that was loud. I was always really fascinated with the Zodiac case. And, uh, <laughs> would you stop barking? <laughs> Hush. That's really loud and disturbing in my mic. <laughs> um, I was always really fascinated with the Zodiac case and the movie that inspired that was dirty harry and i and i was i love dirty harry 
And then I found out, I watched some documentary one night about horror films that are actually based on true stories. And one of the segments was dedicated to the town that dreaded sundown. And they told the, the whole real story. And so then I'm like, well, I have to finally watch this film. And it's really eerily similar to the Zodiac murders. Even his M.O. and the way he killed and the wearing the hood over his face and all that kind of stuff is very similar to the Zodiac murders. But in Texarkana, on the Arkansas side of Texarkana versus, you know, San Francisco, California. So um, Screen Factory put out the the disc and i'm like one of the times that they did a sale i picked it up and and last year i think i had it for a while before i finally watched it and last year i put it in and i was really kind of blown away by it i mean um what was your what was your first did have you ever heard of had you ever heard of the actual case or the Uh, movie before uh like like you i the first time i heard of it was in scream also um and but like you said it's the one movie of all the movies that the Scream franchise references, it's the only one that for some reason, uh, it seems like it never got any any elevation or, or, or anything because of that. Um, and so it's like the, the, the title always kind of stuck in my head, but never enough to the point where it was something that I needed to look up. I had never heard of the Texarkana uh, Moonlight Murders beforehand or or anything like that. Um, and then, uh, like one too long ago on Twitter, you had mentioned it to me and said, yeah, you, you, um, you'd probably like this one. And, um, I went on Amazon to, and saw that the, the screen factory disc and it was on sale for like 13 bucks. And I was like, okay, well, yep. Let me go ahead and let me just go ahead and grab it. And so I, I watched it, uh, yesterday, uh, in preparation and, Oh, so it was your first time. Yep. Yep. This was the first time. Um, and yeah, I was, I love, so like atmosphere means a lot to me in a movie. Um, if, if I, if you just nailed the atmosphere, sometimes I don't even, care about if there's anything wrong in the narrative specifically but if you if you set a vibe and i can i go well i i I enjoy watching the film with that vibe and i think what also kind of helped uh uh make it a little more enjoyable for me is that um you know the the town everything's great during the day and when the sun goes down everyone is barricaded in you know barricaded inside their home and i think what kind of helped with that um with that viewing also is because the time changed recently so it gets dark earlier now and <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. but i i love that and you brought up you brought up dirty harry and that that as a good that's a good uh thing compared to cuz yeah it it's one of those things that felt kind of it's very it's very random which makes it, which makes it even more uh, terrifying a, a you know a scenario um, because throughout the film you know like even if you watch something like Silence of the Lambs they're putting together Buffalo Bill's mo and you know there are things that will lead you to where where he's going to go next uh, but with a film like Town of the Dreaded Sundown the Phantom uh, as they call him you. You don't know what his 
what the mo is you don't really know what's going the only the only thing you have to go on is that he comes every he 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 kills every 21 days that's the only thing they had to go off of um and i think it's a thought it was a very good uh tense uh piece of uh of of suspense is very uh it's it's quite thrilling um they did have their moments of um kind of like last house on the left they do have their moments of um of uh comedy in there a bit like there's that one cop that's like the comic relief basically but um but <laughs> he's other, basically barney Fife. yeah but, but other than that it's it's pretty it's it's pretty serious and um not very you know if 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 someone is not one for for gore it's not very gory or anything like that but like you said it's impactful because it's it's a small town and like with last house on the left you know you're always think people are always thinking of the dangers of the of the you know if you go to the big city the dangers there and it's like there are dangers right here in our own little, you know, our own little towns. And um, like you say, you, you begin to feel along with them, with the citizens that you are dreading sundown. And um, there's a scene like right towards the end when they all start to, you know, it's one thing to go home, but now they go at home and they're boarding up their windows because um, the one woman that um, they get shot towards the end, um, even though she does survive, uh, but you know, even when they're boarding up the windows, it's it's um, it's ter- you know it's terrifying. You know, it, it's it's one of those things. It's, it's like with Last House on the Left. I love when the movie kind of seems to now. I don't want this to happen uh, in my real life for myself or for anyone. But there's something about when a movie really crafts reality well and makes you feel, oh my god, this is something that really can happen and you kind of think oh wow this that's what makes it most terrifying because it's something i can it's something i can spot you know something that could happen you know something that could happen um even with the phantom itself you know walking around wearing the um uh the sack over his face and everything um shoot before we went home for the pandemic i i used to work in downtown philadelphia and people wear weird stuff all the time not you know but you know when you're walking around in the middle of the day you're not really thinking of anything but you know to see someone in a in a sack in the, you know in the middle of the night uh while you're in your car or like people were in their homes it's just yeah it's terrifying and um i got to read up more on the actual uh historical events itself cuz um, yeah, I, I found it. I found it fascinating, and um, I'll, definitely something. I think there's a commentary on the on the disc. I'll have to watch that. Um, uh, watch it with that later. Yeah, well, the the real life stuff, like in broad strokes, it gets it pretty right. Like the the things that are that are interesting that they changed were more t- to make it weird. You know, like uh, in like the trombone murder is probably the biggest the biggest departure from. Now he did kill a member of the marching band, or a member of the band, the school band, or whatever. But there's no evidence that he like 
tied a knife to the trombone and like and it's such a weird scene right but it kind it's kind of off-putting like in a disturbing way and there were urban legends for years after that 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 was really how he killed that girl because of this movie so i don't know if that's a good thing or you know whatever but i'm just saying uh what the movie does well is make you believe the scenes of terror and make you believe once again just like last time on the left it makes you believe that he's i don't the death scenes are really disturbing like there aren't very many horror films and i've seen a lot of them <laughs> there aren't very many of them that make me uncomfortable when people die and this is one of them uh last house on the left is one of them this is one of them and i was talking about the zodiac case but the movie zodiac that david fincher directed it did that too where it felt very real like he captured that and i think this movie in 1976 captures that vibe and um and it's the like last house on the left i think the moments of humor I don't know that they work quite as well in in this, but they they're not I mean, they they don't they're not bad. I mean, like there are actually some like genuinely funny moments, like the scene where they're where they dress the one cop up like a woman and they're like in the makeout, they're in like uh you know yeah. lovers lane or whatever, <laughs> and his breast pops or whatever. Yeah. Like that actually made me laugh, but it was kind of also wouldn't have been that out of place on the Andy Griffith show or something. Uh, but I think that's kind of the point. I don't, I mean, without having the director talk about it, I've, I've never, I mean, he's passed away as well, but I haven't really ever seeked out any interviews with him, but I feel like the humor in this works fairly well. Like it's not, it, it's a really, I think the movie's good. I just think that, um, the, my biggest fault with it would be like, I would rather it not Either I would rather it be a documentary because I think it starts out actually pretty strong because it's the same guy doing the narration that did uh, the Legend of Boggy Creek and I think he's really good that that voice that guy's voiceovers his narration is very uh, very effective um, it sets the tone well and um, yeah I kind of more you kind of you get hooked on just how he tells the you know how he's telling the story. Yeah, I think if it had stuck with that instead of taking these long breaks to try to be a normal movie um, and maybe kept just the, the really serious kind of off up kind of uh, unsettling narration along with the really, really well done reenactment scenes that put anything you've ever seen from Unsolved Mysteries to shame um, from the old, old, and I love the old Unsolved Mysteries, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying, like, these, these reenactments are very disturbing, and if you just made a straight documentary with that, it's a very strong movie on its own, but then they focus on the cops, and the cops are just goofballs that are kind of inept and really don't do anything. Like, they really, they don't solve the case, so they're just really, and they're really not characters, they're, and I think that's the weak, the only weakness of the film uh, it would have, it could have either been a really good documentary or it could have been a really good film with some better characters and some better drama, but then you would have had to go further away from the real story. And I get that overall still a really good movie. Like it, even with its faults, I still, I've enjoyed it both times I watched it and I will definitely watch it again. It's just that, um, 
you know, I mean, it's a little more uneven. Whereas the humor in Last House on the Left, and I don't know if I ever made my point fully with that, but the humor in Last House on the Left felt more disturbing. Like, it was almost like, it felt intentional in the way it was like, the contrast between whatever backwoods ass stupid ass cops in that movie were doing which wasn't helping anybody uh just showing you how completely without help you're going to be in this situation they're not going to help you and i feel like that's there's a lot of truth to that and i feel the same way with this movie and i think very in a very realistic way they're kind of saying hey look cops can only do so much if somebody wants to hurt you, they're going to be more reactionary than preventative. So the truth is you're on your own in these situations, which adds a le- level of terror. I just think that they spend a little bit more time on it in the town, the town to dread the sundown, you know, but I, at the same time, I'm in, I'm entertained the whole time. I'm entertained by it the whole, the whole movie. I'm, I'm no matter what. And I think that one thing that town that dread of sundown does well is it actually realistically talks about the motivations of serial crime. And I think that that was a, that had to have been a fairly new thing. And I mean, we're talking about the seventies, um, profiling serial killers was, was, was if it was even happening, uh, it, it was new. And like, even in the movie, when they bring in the, uh, Texas Ranger, that actually is based on the real thing. They really did bring in, they based that off a real Texas Ranger. They really did bring him in. Now he didn't solve the crime, but he was one of the few law enforcement officers in the country that had some understanding of this type of crime. And um, this is at a time when the FBI was just getting started trying to figure this kind of stuff out. So I think all the stuff he talks about in the film uh, and about MOs and on all that stuff about the, the what this killer's motivations are, like that's all really ahead of its time. Like you don't really get into stuff like that until like, Manhunter and like the Thomas Harris novels and stuff. I feel like that was kind of the mainstream of that, and that was still felt really fresh in the 80s. So, until and then you get into the Silence of the Lambs in the 90s, that still felt really fresh. I just don't think that now we take it for granted because of all the true crime stuff and you know the homicide hunter stuff that and and CSI and all that. Now it's so well known that it's almost cliche, but at this point in time it was really fresh and i like that aspect of it i think they do a really good job with that um even if the humor makes it a little uneven i still enjoyed i just there were at the same time there's you're not watching the town that dreaded sundown for characters as much as atmosphere and you nailed it on the head it does have that and i think they do that well enough that it's worth returning to uh and all of the 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 scenes of horror in the film with the with the attacks are very scary in my opinion like this every single one i feel like the characters are genuinely terrified and there's something really disturbing and realistic about it uh that woman that that gets shot in the face when her husband gets shot through the window and then she gets shot in the face with the whatever small caliber handgun or whatever that as far as i remember when I read about the case, that's something that really happened. So that's fairly realistic to what really happened. And that is just horrifying. Like you don't see that in movies very often. Most of the time in a movie, you get shot, you fall down. You might not die, but you fall down. Right. And in this, 
she gets shot like twice and then she's like running for her life from to her neighbors like you just it's something so unique that i don't think i've ever really seen you just don't see that in films and i think that sort of thing happened here and that sort of thing once happened in a documentary that i watched about the um about that documentary on netflix about the night stalker something like that happened with him because he was using a small caliber like a 22 or something and it was just the idea that somebody could sneak into your house at night that's my this is by the way is my absolute biggest like this terrifies me the thought that i would be my family's asleep in their bed and i'm asleep in my bed and i'm completely zonked out and not worried about a thing in the world and i get shot in the face in my sleep or or I'm just walking through my house and somebody bursts through and shoots me in the face for no reason. Like that's a terrifying thought. So that actually upsets me when I watch it. Not like, oh, I'm not gonna watch this movie again, but that gets me in a way that a lot of a lot of slasher films or something couldn't do. Um But yeah, that's a scary thought, man. And the thought that you don't just get to die right away, that you have to like be in terror for you know, while you're bleeding out is a is a really horrifying thought, especially if you live out in the middle of nowhere, like I have multiple times in my life, <laughs> where your closest neighbor is is a is a run through a field or or the woods or whatever. Uh, it's a pretty scary thought. Yeah, you know I, what I was what I was thinking was interesting about it is how it does feel like a uh, as a movie, it feels like a um, kind of like the. The, the the premise not the premise Mercer, but uh like a refined version of like you know Texas Chainsaw because you know especially specifically if you talk about like just the opening uh the the with Texas Chainsaw the opening John Larroquette narration um but if you carried that throughout the entire film um and you don't actually focus on you know the kids and 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 Leatherface and all that and but it also feels like a predecessor to like America's Most Wanted or or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With like those reenactments and everything. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And even the way it ends with like he's still out there somewhere, you know, which is exactly what they did with the the Legend of Boggy Creek when you're talking about a monster that nobody really necessarily believes in. Well, somebody probably does, but you know what I mean? Like, it's something that, that's more like, oh, and the monster might be out there. It's actually pretty eerie when you see it, but it's funny at the same time because you're like, okay. With this, it's like, oh no, there are people like that that are still out there. (laughs) And that's really scary. And this was in 1976 when it came out, even though it, that's something else that it does well now. I have obviously no experience living in the 40s but I think it captures the setting and the period that it's trying to capture really well. So you really feel like it's authentic. Like you feel like you're watching a documentary about 1946 or whenever it's taking place. But in that cool way of being, I think it's 1946 is when it takes place. But it came out in 1976. Now that would have only been 20 years before. So the people in the town of Texarkana remembered this yep. very clearly and when the movie's coming out imagine this happened to your town and you knew you knew the people that it direct oh my god would you stop barking what is you what are you barking at am i getting shot in the face by the <laughs> moonlight murderer guy he's coming to get me 
Shut up. Oh, Ryan walked in the room yesterday. Just Oh, actually, it was earlier this morning. Just as a joke, he walked in and he was wearing a Jason hockey mask that he had gotten in like a gift bag at Halloween or whatever. And Leonard just started growling and jumped <laughs> off the bed and like like got between him and me. And I was like, oh, he's protecting me from Jason. If they had had Leonard at Crystal Lake, all those campers would be yeah. fine. But, uh, I mean, he was like not happy with him at all. And then he smelled him and he realized it wasn't a, you know, a murderer. He was fine. <laughs> Anyway, as I was saying, Leonard, before you rudely interrupted, um, uh, I don't even remember what I was saying. Oh, it was it's it's kind of crazy that so the the posters and the and the teaser for this movie said he's still lurking out there it's in te- like basically he's still in Texarkana, and uh, and people got pissed. That was a controversy. Like they actually like got pissed off. Like imagine you're the imagine you're on the tourism board for Texarkana, <laughs> and this movie comes out. And and you're like, like, damn it! Like we like we just about had people here. They almost like we had like 500 hotel bookings. I don't know how many hotels are in Texarkana, but it's like, but we had 500 hotel bookings, and now we're only down to like 50. This is damn movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's strange because okay, go you know. The Dewey Dewey name dropping this movie in Scream is actually like one of the funny that we both had the same reaction that it was one it was the one that didn't really have a huge impact on us. But if you think about it, this is probably the best reference that Scream One makes, in my opinion, drawing some sort of parallel to its to its own at least one of its characters because Dewey feels like he's a cop in he's he's basically representing the type of character that these cops and, and town that dreaded sundown are the type of cops that are in slasher movies. Typically the only difference is we like Dewey yeah. because none of the other cops in these movies is worth a damn most of the time. But Dewey is basically the cops like a, a nineties version of the cops from the last house on the left or the town, the dreaded sundown or a number of other slasher films. Um, so I think that him him referencing this movie was brilliant in retrospect. Like when I watch Scream now, I'm like, oh, I get what they're going for. Also, the his whole reference was like the town of of uh, Woodsboro was shutting down. You know, like they had the curfew in place. Everybody was supposed to stay inside. You know, so it very much was like a town that dresses down. And Dewey feels like he could be a Texas cop instead of a California <laughs> rural cop. You know. Um, and I think there was always something relatable about that because I grew up in in the rural South, and that's how the sheriff's departments are. They're just they're great if you you know if you want to file a property damage report or or you know a domestic violence you know case or something or that somebody bashed your mailbox with a baseball bat or blew up a you know set off. Uh, firecrackers on your porch or in my grandfather's case somebody threw a stick of dynamite in the tree (laughs) (laughs) so somebody threw a stick of dynamite in the tree in our front yard years before i was even born like when my grandparents were still living there and blew up the top of their tree wow i'm sure they had the uh the sheriff out there for that but uh yeah i mean they're not equipped to deal with these type of things they're just not that's why they have to call in the text and you you can't blame them because these are unusual type of things so they call in the Texas Ranger, but um, I think that that I think that that reference in Scream is brilliant. Now that I 
seen the movie, I think it's great. But yeah, I mean, it. I think it. I think it does what it sets out to do really well, and even even talking about it with you now, I think maybe I was a little too harsh, only giving it three stars. I think it's a good, solid four star film. I think it sets out to do what it does, and it does it well. But going back to that town, I was gonna finish that. So the town. That's another parallel it has with Scream. Scream is a fictionalized version, but in the Screamless, in the Scream world, the Woodsboro murder, ha- the Sydney's mom is raped and murdered, and then a year later, the Woodsboro murders happens. Then Gail's, Gail Weathers writes a book about it, and the book becomes a bestseller, and then they make a movie about it called Stab. And then in Scream 2, you kind of see how that affects everybody. Well, think about in the real, the only thing I could think of in the, I mean, there's a lot of movies based on true stories, but specifically in real life in Texarkana this is stab to the real life residents of Texarkana I can see it especially yeah especially in 1976 this is stab uh this the real life equivalent and they were pissed about the marketing of it being like he's the killer still out there and all that however every halloween now like because now we're like a number of years at, later we're we're not just 20 years later anymore but n- over the t- over time even though there were lawsuits and everything else they have softened they show this movie in the in the town square every halloween this is one of the movies that they show it's become part of the town it'd be like if woodsboro got together every uh halloween and showed scream i mean showed stab you know which they do in, st- in, sc- in Scream 4, they even have ghost, mace ma- ghost face masks hanging uh, on the posts and everything. But, yeah, um, it's a trip, man. Because when I saw Scream back in the day, I thought, that's so insensitive and nobody would ever be that shitty, would they? Oh, yeah, they would be totally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and the fact that there's a real life town where some real life murders happen and there's a movie that was made about it 20 years later and people in 2022 or 2023 and forever on will be watching this movie celebrating it almost. It's a weird thing, man. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a weird thing. It's fascinating. That's I'm going to be a Spock on that one. It's just fascinating. Humans are fascinating. <laughs> yeah, no, I... I... I thought it was just, uh, like I said, I thought it was a really uh, interesting piece. I I was actually expecting more. I wasn't expecting the the, the documentary uh, feel to it. Because um, so I was always expecting, oh, this is like a, um, especially when I saw it, it, was, it came out in 76. I was like, oh, is this like another um, uh, sort of proto slasher? Um, you know, and because, yeah, this is this would be what two years before Halloween. Yeah, Halloween seventy eight, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I thought that was especially when you see the poster, um, you know, you see the hood, and I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this is going to be, uh, like I said, like another proto slasher, and like I said, it's really not. It really focuses on, and like I said it doesn't even really focus on, like people in the town it's you know the the cops are the you know are the focus and you know it does make me you know i mean now that unfortunately well unfortunately he's you know they killed him in in scream scream five but uh 
you know, makes you wonder if they were to go back and do some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, spinoff movie of in this in the vein of this uh, from like Dewey's perspective, like we're, we're, we're basically following Dewey the entire uh, the entire t- uh, time during the events of Scream where they where they do something meta like this again. Well, it's really easy to forget, at least my initial, we'll talk about it, well, I don't really know if I want to dive into that, because I know we're going to talk about it when we get to Scream, but I will say, my initial thoughts on Dewey, and it was I didn't trust him, at all, in the first Scream. I, I was conditioned, first of all, to not trust cops in the first place, yeah. uh, and then on top of that, in a slasher film, they're the most useless characters ever, and... uh and then, and then I think it's Scream Two is when Dewey really becomes lovable. You know, I do, I do now going back because I know who he is. I love Dewey in the first Scream, but the first time I watched it, I didn't trust him. I thought, you know, he could be a killer, and they do that on purpose. Like they intentionally make him a red herring, you know. But uh, I think it's Scream Two when he had that reassessment. But there are so many good goofy. I mean, I love one of my favorite things when we're watching. It needs to be a segment on PhotoFlow. We need to have segments. If I was going to do a segment, I would do a goofy cop segment because there are a lot of goofy cops in slasher movie history. Uh, Or just useless cops, I think. Um, And Wes Craven typically played around with that a lot in his own movies, obviously all the way back to Last House. But uh, I don't really feel like the cops in in this town that dreaded Sundown are, are... necessarily bad cops at least not in the way they portray it in the film i just don't think that they have any freaking clue what they're doing and it's the movie's not necessarily trying to i don't think you could call a movie that focuses this much on the police i don't think you could call it a negative portrayal as much as guys i'm on a podcast please stop knocking on the door I don't think you could call it a negative portrayal. Uh, I just think that the point that maybe the filmmakers are trying to make is they really can't help you in this situation. And that that alone is, is a, for some people that don't already know that, that's a scary thought. But I for think, anyone that's ever actually... Go no, ahead. I was just going to say, I think, I think that's kind of highlighted by, you know, the final... Uh, like that final scene where, you know, they finally, they finally spot him. They finally catch him. And they unfortunately just happen to be on the other side of a train. They shoot him yeah. in the leg. And it's like, well, darn, they shot him in the leg. And, and, and I get the train was on the other, they were on the other side of the train, but they shot him in the leg and they still, couldn't get they still couldn't get him and yeah i think that like i said that that's definitely one of those things where it's like darn even when they were able to do like you said i won't say finally did their job but when they were they were able to actually do their job and do something and it the circumstances still wouldn't allow them to um you know to catch him i mean that I mean, and yeah, and I mean that there's a lot of tr- there's a lot of truth to that though. Like I, I think that um, that's what makes something like uh, 
Silence of the Lambs feel feel good because that's what you want. You know, like even though she takes a huge risk, she ultimately knows this is my only chance. So she does what she has to do in that situation when Clarice goes, and we'll talk about Silence of the Lambs soon too, but when she goes down to that basement, that's what you want, you know? But that's not the reality a lot of times. Like, very few of these cases in real life are solved by the police. Like, um, in in the grand scheme of things, a lot of times there's other factors. You know, it's people being willing to come forward when they know something or or the neighborhood kind of like in the case of the night stalker the the it took the neighborhood just saying screw this we're going to chase this guy and not let him out of our sight we got him you know as soon as they realized the wolf the wolf in sheep's clothing among them you know like and 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 uh it took the citizens of of Los Angeles to bring him down you know uh i'm just saying like very rarely very rarely did these cases get solved with good old-fashioned police work. That's all I'm saying. There's there's other things that go into it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, or it's just they, they get sloppy or they or they or the technology got better, you know, in a lot of these cases. But um, will they ever solve? Or do they even have actual suspects on this? I don't know, because when I read about it, there were like hundreds of people in, real, in the real-life case that they interviewed that, and then they just never was it. They just never were able to solve it, and that's crazy to me. Like, cause that one. I mean, there were a lot of a lot of serial killer, you know, getting away with it during that period of time. But um, but yeah, I mean that and uh, the Zodiac case, and in, in particular, just because of just because of the targets, like these these mostly just kids that he was killing, you know, that were just doing what kids do, you know, and. Uh, most of the time they were just out there making out or whatever when they were being killed. And, and that's, you know, that's a classic slasher movie trope now, but that might be where it came from. <laughs> Stuff like this, like in real life, you know, that's kind of, um, it's interesting because those two cases in particular happened and then this movie came out and I don't, you know, it, that, I'm not sure when the whole teenagers going to make out and getting killed thing. I guess I would always associate that with Friday the 13th, you know, but, um, there is a interesting through line from, even though you said, I mean, and I agree with you, I, I, I don't know that this is a proto slasher, but it definitely still is in that what ultimately makes up the slasher film, you know, um, which really solidifies with that Friday the 13th especially um and and I would say like Friday the 13th and Halloween 2 Friday the 13th part 2 era is when it really solidified because before then it was this weird mix of true stories and urban legends and and uh and um like Italian giallo and murder mysteries and all kind of mixed up and then it kind of became a genre there for a little while um but yeah man uh the town that dreaded sundown is very much worth anyone out there's time that is interested in any of the following uh, uh murder mysteries unsolved murder mysteries uh documentaries true crime um you know it fits it's really it really scratches that itch in a way that uh there just wasn't a lot of that at the time it came out so it deserves some recognition on on that alone i think the director felt like it was um I think he felt like he leaned a little too hard into the comedy, and I think that he obviously was disappointed that the movie wasn't a bigger hit than it was, but it's a true cult classic, and the 
way that I think it, it got a lot of attention as time went on and it's become a favorite to a lot of people. And he wanted to make a sequel in the nineties, uh, was just never able to get it off the ground or, or a remake or a sequel or, or whatever. But he passed away and they eventually did make a few years ago, a requel to it, if you will, that is sort of a sequel, but also a remake i haven't seen it yet but i've heard it's good so i might we might be watching that one in the future too have you ever seen anything about that no i haven't um i've never read nothing the rent so never read it i i've never seen it either um again i knew of it but never never saw it and when i did know the name it wasn't until like i looked it up and i was like oh, they, oh yeah they they did a sequel to to this one. I was just on wiki really quick. It just, it says it's a meta sequel. So I'd be curious to see how they, how they handled it. I think it'll fit nicely into a future conversation with like what we were just already saying that it already weirdly ties to scream in in some meta ways (laughs) unintentionally. So maybe, uh, or intentionally. So in the case of scream, I think that they were doing that. That could be why maybe that was intentional from Kevin Williams. And maybe he knew that, Texarkana had embraced the movie in a weird way eventually um maybe that was where he got the idea for Woodsboro and its relationship to these murders and all that kind of thing I thought it was uh strange too that they sort of did that with the Halloween 2018 when David Gordon Green the script that they used for that they they have that moment where the teenagers are talking and one of them says uh I thought um I thought that uh, Michael Myers and and your grandma were Kent were like brother and sister, and she's like, "Well, that's just something people some people said." And then they're like, and then he's trying to downplay it, like, "Well, he only killed like six people." I mean, <laughs> nowadays that's kind of like not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when you think about it, somebody on a I'm always quoting somebody else, but it's, if it's a good quote, I'm going to quote it. It was somebody. The guy, one of the actors that played one of the cops in this movie, I watched an interview with, and he said, "The truth is, in nineteen, he he grew up in somewhere in near Texarkana, and he said that uh, the truth is, at that time, this was really terrifying. And the director and writer of the film actually did grow up in in the town and remembered." you know this was something he was very familiar with he the story was already there because he grew up hearing it it was something he remembered happening and uh but the actor said if this happened now it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't even be like front page news if somebody killed five people in a in a town in the middle of america like nobody would it would not even make front page news now i don't i don't know but i feel like he's probably right you know um i mean we have shootings mass shootings now that don't even make the front page you know so it's not it wouldn't be that shocking that uh but but at the time in 1976 this absolutely would have been you know especially if you were in the area if you lived in you know near texarkana on either side you would probably you know this probably would have stuck out to you as being crazy because uh, there weren't many um famous cases of serial killers at that time in that area so uh, but yeah, I mean, because well, you were t- the city versus the the small towns. This isn't supposed to happen in the small town, you know. I mean that that living in a small town, that mentality still exists. 
That's why when something horrible happens, inevitably, if you're watching the local news, somebody will be interviewed and they absolutely will say, I don't know. I never heard of anything like that happening around here. (laughs) (laughs) Which is true. They haven't. I didn't think I didn't think this could happen here. Yeah. Most of the evil in small towns happens behind closed doors and under the in the underbelly of the <laughs> it doesn't happen out in the public you know so when something like this happens it is very shocking i don't think uh but i do think he had a point like i think if it happened in 2022 it would be a story somewhere but it might not even make it to national news unless it just continued to an absurd absurd amount but that's the Mo- Texarkana Moonlight Murders if you're interested in further reading and if you just want to see a good movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, 1976. Who is the director? I've Charles, called him the director multiple times. Uh, Charles B. Pierce. He actually plays right. that one goofy uh, cop in the film. Well, thank you for listening to the Photo Flow. It's been a really good episode and I enjoyed this week's movies and I look forward to next week. Eric, you picked... What did you pick for next week? We're doing a superhero, superhero horror. So we'll be uh, talking. uh, We're going back to Wes Craven with his uh, 1982 uh, DC film Swamp Thing. And then we will jump to 1998 with uh, Wesley Snipes and uh, the Marvel movie Blade. Oh, that's going to be fun. Yeah. (laughs) Something fun to wash away the uh, filth of this week's double feature. But yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Some more Wes Craven talk. And I probably haven't seen Swamp Thing in a couple years now. So it'll be it'll be about time for another rewatch. All right. Well, thank you for listening to PhotoFlow. And please, I want to stress, we need your likes. We need your subscriptions. We need your reviews. We need your input. Whatever app you listen to us on. Hey, thank you, Canada. We've got a lot of listeners. I feel like we're half and half. We're like mostly... USA and the other half is uh, Canada. Hey, Canada, we got a lot of Canadian listeners, and we got like one guy out there in Vietnam. Thank you, appreciate that. Uh, we got <laughs> we've got some other people just in random places. Uh, if you listen to us and you like it at all, if you don't like it, I don't care. Leave us a review. Leave us five stars, whether you like it or not. Nobody cares about honesty. Nobody cares. <laughs> this is just a podcast, so you know just. please thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed it and we look forward to talking to you next week podcast ask us many questions who will listen and who will return next week who will take the time to rate and review check for a new episode of photo flow every week Find us on Facebook and Twitter at PhotoFlow Terror and Instagram on PhotoFlow underscore Terror. Thank you for listening to PhotoFlow. We'll find the terror in the smiles. <laughs>